I want us to move to 1 John chapter 2. And we had scheduled one week per uh, per chapter through the epistles of John. Clearly, I was... uh, did not know what I was talking about. Uh, because this is our third week in chapter two. We spent two weeks in chapter one. This is our third week in chapter two. There is a slight chance we'll be in chapter two next week, but I think we're going to get through it. If we get everywhere I want to go in the remaining few minutes in which I have with you, then we're actually going to get through the first 10 verses of chapter three, because it is a common theme that you see throughout these verses. Whether we'll get there or not, I don't know. Um, if this is your first time with us in the series, the, what we're doing is an interactive series in which I do some teaching, but I expect you to do some talking back. If you have a question, you can ask it. There are no questions that are off limits as Christina, I don't know if she's in here, she's probably serving today. She demonstrated last week, right? So we started talking about women. Had nothing to do with First John chapter 2 that we had talked about so far, but it was a great conversation. Those are the things I want you to do. I want you to bring out the questions. We are not just supposed to be a place where we pat each other on the back and we say, yes, we all believe the same thing. Now let's just tell each other that we believe the same thing. Instead, it's a place for us to say, okay, I'm struggling with this. Help me understand this. Or I disagree because, and if you disagree, disagree, but have a reason, have a biblical reason for the reason that you disagree. But let's be honest about this conversation. A couple of the weeks, I mean, I've sat down here for about an hour after the service is over with ongoing conversations about things we've talked about. That is the purpose of this. So if this is your first time with us, um, there'll be some questions I'll ask you. If you have a question, sh- you know, I don't shout it out. Raise your hand. I'll call on you unless it's David. Apparently, I don't call on David. I've been doing better though, right? I've been doing better. And... Uh, So you have the opportunity to do that. I'm not going to read verses 15 through 17 again. It is the passage um, in which John is talking about not loving the world. I want to remind you what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that the two most powerful and transforming forces in the world other than God or Jesus is shame and love. We can approach all of our discussions from either of these two places. And when we especially begin talking about sin, one of the problems with, with the way we talk about sin is when we, when we wrap it in shame, we motivate people for, with the wrong things. If I shame you into doing something for Jesus, you're not doing it because you love and want to follow Jesus. You're doing it because you feel shame. Sin and it builds shame in us. This is the response of sin in us. It is not the tool by which we change your behavior. Love is the most powerful force on the planet outside of God himself. But shame is right there with it. One leads you to God, one leads you away from God. And so as we begin to really talk through this, I want you to understand the conversation that John is giving is, is all couched in love, not in shame. So I want you to keep that in your hearts. I want you to keep that in your minds. And if you are here today and you are struggling with something that we're talking about and you feel shame, you don't want anybody to know, and you're even embarrassed to even pray about it because of what you fear God thinks about you, understand that is not the Holy Spirit. That is not God. That is the effect of sin and an enemy that wants you to live a life other than what God created you for. All right? So... Keep those two things in mind. We come through here and John has already said, live a life following Christ without living a life wanting to sin. He has also said, but if you do, because you will, we have an advocate with the father who is who? 
It is Jesus. He is our advocate. And we talked about the word advocate in the sense of he is our attorney. He is the one who speaks for us. He also, John said, that he is a propitiation for our sins, which means Jesus not only speaks for us, he's the one who took our punishment from us. He was the atonement for sin. So I, don't, I do not want to enter into this conversation in either one of two ways. I don't want to enter into it and in saying, well, sin doesn't matter. You do what you want. Jesus has already died for you. It's no big deal. A lot of people believe that. That is an increasing understanding of what Jesus has done for us. It doesn't matter now. I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. I can do whatever I want. And while it's increasing, it's not new. This happened, this exact mindset was growing and gaining steam even in this early first century church. All the apostles had to speak out against it. But what I also don't want to do in the sense of sin is to make it this huge overcoming obstacle in which that we cannot move past it. Sin is not something that is going to have power over a follower of Jesus. But it is important that we understand what our, our role is in fighting the temptation to sin. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. Now, let me just ask you this. How do you interpret that? How do you interpret the phrase of John saying, don't love the world or the things in the world? Does that mean you shouldn't love your car? Does that mean you shouldn't love your wife or your kids or your husband? Does that mean you shouldn't, you know, what does that mean, Renee? So you're equating, I think what you're equating with the love of the world is the seeking of approval, I think is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, I'm okay with things that God's not okay with because everyone else is okay with it, right? Yeah. And so you, there's, okay, so that, I think that's very true for a lot of people. I think that's very true for, for all of us to some degree, but yes, that is true. What else? What other thoughts do you have? What is he saying here? Don't love the world or the things in the world. Is he saying you should hate your dog? Like, like Alabama fans? So I, you're talking about Alabama fans, right? Not, not Tennessee Vol fans. Yeah, all the other teams, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so that, so, so Rick brings up a great point in that when something becomes elevated over our love for God, there is a problem. It doesn't matter what it is. It, and, and, and this is, this is, I believe that is what he's saying. Um, I think what you're saying is we can elevate the desire for other people not to be mad at us to a place above our love for God. Like I will walk away from you. If you've ever had a friend, you know, like they're your friend and then they get around a certain group of people and they act like they don't know you. I mean, that's Jesus says like, you do that to me all the time. You know, if, if you deny me before others, I'm going to deny you before the father. I mean, that's exactly what he was saying. So, um, yeah, it's when we elevate those things, Vicki. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Yeah. How powerful you are. You need power. You need to be attractive. You need to have wealth. You need to have influence. You need to have lots of followers on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. The, Jesus would say, oh, you know, deny yourself rather than trying to get all those things to prove how good you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this is, this is one of the things that's difficult for all of us to struggle with. What is the thing that holds the most value within my life? Is it your job? Is it your bank account? Is it your retirement? You know, for a lot of young families and and, and Christian young families, it's your children. It can be your spouse. And this is one of the things that are hard. These are, are hard things to discuss. And it is not that your child is necessarily a worldly thing. But what Jesus is trying to say is, and what John's saying here is, there's only one number one place in your heart. And there can only be one thing there. Now, someone would say, well, gosh, if I got to love God more than I love my kids, I'm going to love my kids. Uh, what I think Jesus would say, while we don't have a verse that says it's the exact same thing, but I think it's not uh, against the biblical account of what Jesus, is, what Jesus taught was, you're not truly going to be able to love your kids well until you're able to love Jesus well. So it's not that you don't love your kids or your kids are not important. It doesn't mean that you don't sacrifice or hope for them or pray for them or work hard for them. It means that if we give them that position, then we will consistently nudge God out. And he is saying, I've got to hold that position. Nothing else can be in that position. And the world, what he's going to go on to say in these next few verses is the world is constantly tempting you with any number of things to hold that position other than God. And so he's not saying, you know, I, I love, I, don't laugh at me. I love my pillow. All right. I love it. Like when I lay down on my pillow, I'm like, oh, life is so good. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so tired. And I'm gone like that. Ask Deidre, especially when our new puppy starts barking and I don't hear it. (laughs) It's the pillow. It's so awesome. But I would never put my hope in that pillow. If I have to give that stupid thing away and, uh, you know, and I've got to, you know, whatever, I've got to sleep on a rock. Listen, Jesus is so much better than that. We, we can do that with our cars. We can do that with our houses. We can do that with our phones. We can do that with whatever position we're trying to get at work. Those things in which we will do anything to get that thing. And what it indicates is what is the treasure of our heart? 
What is the treasure of our heart? Jesus says, I am the treasure. And if I am not holding that position, I will not share it with anyone else. Either I am or I am not the greatest treasure that you have. Now, I could then give you five steps in how to make him your greatest treasure, because that's normally how a sermon goes. But it would be self-defeating. Because either he is or he isn't. Either he is that treasure or he's not. So it's not about finding five ways in which to prove he's my treasure. It's all about what is the motive and the desire of our heart is what John is trying to get at. Don't love the things in the world. It doesn't mean there aren't great things, good things in the world that we should not enjoy. But don't put them in that place. According to John, if we do have a love for the world... And the things of the world, what does that indicate about our relationship with God based on those first few verses? This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If that's the case, and there is something in the world that I love more, what does he say it tells us about our relationship with him? Um, it says if you love the world and the world like is in you, then the Father is not in you. Because mm-hmm. um, you can't have both at once. Right. Right. So what does it look like? What does it look like to fight the temptation of loving the world? Does anyone, let me just ask, uh, you can raise your hand. You don't have to give me any examples. Does anybody here struggle with this? Does anyone here struggle with loving, thing, loving the world? Okay. I've got a few honest people in here. Uh, some of you aren't so honest. Let's be honest. Some of you aren't so honest. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. You know, even Satan assumed he could turn Jesus with this. So if you go back and you look at and when Jesus begins his public ministry, he begins his public ministry in the desert being tempted by Satan, and Satan tempts him with these worldly things. Do you remember what some of them are? Bread. I'll give you food. You're hungry, I'll give you food. Kingdom. That's right. You want a kingdom? I'll give you everything you see. Which is kind of funny because it's already his. But I'll give you everything you see. What else? Do you remember any of the others? Yeah, throw yourself off this cliff. Just prove how great you are. That's right. And all these angels will come to your aid and pick you up. It will be awesome. And there will be incredible music in the background. Lighting will be perfect to see you ascend off out of the cliff. Yeah. Well, they, well, they did come and tend to him later. Yeah. So even Satan thought Jesus could be turned with this same thing. So for us, to, if anyone would ever say as a follower of Jesus, I don't ever struggle with this. Well, yes, you do. <laughs> We all do. This is, a, this is a way of living life. One of the reasons that we do have to fight the temptation to use shame in this way is because it is, that is not a fair fight. Because we are all guilty. If I use shame to make you stop doing something that you shouldn't do, and yet I don't do that same thing to myself, well, that's an unfair fight. I'm as guilty as they are. So shame is not the tool by which we go and we change people. Christina? Mm-hmm. 
Very good. The, one of the best ways to combat these temptations is to remember Scripture, which is why we need to spend so much time reading Scripture. We, you don't just go to Scripture in the moments you need it. You, you build a repository in your heart of Scripture. I mean, you just take it in all the time. You're just always taking it in. And in the moment that you need it, the Holy Spirit brings it out. But if there's nothing there to pull from, then you're going and you're flipping through. And this is when we begin to go, oh, I'm just going to flip through wherever my finger stops. That's where Jesus wants me to read. Well, that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. You hide it in your heart repeatedly. You take it in. You take it in. You take it in. And then the Holy Spirit helps you not only understand it, but brings it to your attention in the moment in which you need it. So, yes, good thoughts. For, uh, Paul talks about this as well. Um, and he really clarifies a little bit the difference in what John is saying about loving the world. He brings in the component of love, but talking about temptation in, in one specific temptation. This is in, from 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. It says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And it is possible that some would top, stop right there on that verse and say, you know, therefore, uh, if you have any money, you're in sin. You, should, you cannot follow Jesus unless you're absolutely destitute and poor. Um, that's the only way you can follow Jesus. But that's not what Paul is saying is all. Instead, what he says is happening in that moment of seeking wealth is for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through, it's through this craving. And I love that he uses this word because it's this sense within us, I've got to have this. It's like this raging temptation, desire to have this thing is within. I can't stop it. I just, I've got to have it. But this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. In other words, when we pursue anything other than Jesus, the end result, long-term, will always be pain. There's a gratification that sin brings in the short term that does not play out long-term. In the short term, whenever we truly want uh, whatever this, the craving is, and in the moment in which we receive it, it feels good. The craving is quenched. But it will always lead then to disappointment, discouragement, and pain. And which is what Paul is saying. There's a reason that we, we overcome sin. It is not just because God said, listen, here are my arbitrary rules. And if you want to be in my club, you've got to follow my rules. Because let's be honest, a lot of people in the world, that's exactly what they believe about the teachings of Jesus. They are arbitrary rules that, you know, he came up with these things, but none of them really matter. Uh, but if you want to be in his club, you got to do those things. No, that, that was never been the understanding of God's people throughout history. It has always been, there is a way that leads to death and there is a way that leads to life. The only way that leads to life is Jesus Christ. Every other way leads to death. Sin always leads to death. It always leads to pain. It always leads to broken relationships. It always leads to a place of discouragement and depression. It always leads you to a place of brokenness. That is what sin does. So when we begin to talk about sin, especially when we begin to like, we want to poke everybody else's sin and we want to call out everybody else's sin while we hide ours, we cradle it so that no one can see it. The problem is, is we misunderstand what Jesus is wanting to do. It is not just to change our behavior. What Jesus is wanting to do is to rescue us from it. To pull us out of it. To restore us to what he created us to be. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, talking about Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands what you've been through. Jesus in his earthly limited body experienced those temptations yet did not fall into them. Yet we do. We don't have the divinity of Jesus within us that he did. He was able to have those temptations and not sin. We are going to sin, which is why we have a high priest who intercedes for us. But in Galatians 5.1, Paul talks again about what it looks like to walk away from the temptation to sin. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So some of you know what it feels like for, to be in slavery to sin. Like, I have to do this thing. Addiction is one of those types of things. Whether it be alcohol, whether it be drugs, whether it be pornography, whether it be getting the number of likes on Facebook posts or Instagram, or getting people to say, oh, you look so good in that picture. That addictive behavior, which is what basically on social media that is, by the way. If you need to have a certain number of likes, you know, we all at some level, if we think we put something cute or interesting or witty, we want to see, did anybody else get it? Did anybody else like it? But there is a, that leads to an addiction to get others to approve of us. And it is a downward spiral. It is a downward spiral. Miss Jean? And I think that when we give ourselves an opportunity to That's right, which is exactly what chapter 3 is about. You have been reading ahead, Miss Jean. Well, she had been reading ahead. She, I know you, she lives it out. She lives it out. We see it every week in her. Yes. So, you know, all of these things are pushing us to an understanding that God is drawing you to a place of health, of fullness, to a place of what, what he created you to be before sin entered in through Adam and Eve, and now we ourselves still struggle with. He is encouraging us to find that place of wholeness, of fullness, of perfection. And perfection that is talked about in Scripture is not that we are without fault, but that sense that we are whole. We are unbroken. That life is good. That we see good things in God, even if we are seeing things falling apart in the worldly lives in which we live. Even if we lose a job, we have financial problems, even if there's sickness. There are so many good things because of Jesus and what he is doing. Let's move on to 1 John chapter 2. This is, I, want to get, I do want to talk through this whole passage about Antichrist because uh, it's often misunderstood. 1 John chapter 2 verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all, that, that they all are not of us. But you who have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the, the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, I wanted us to go through this because I don't know about you, but I grew up in in a time of the Left Behind books and movies. Anybody remember the Left Behind? Everybody read those, watched those. They were terrible movies, by the way. But we watched them because we wanted to be prepared when Jesus came back, right? Because there was a, a great teaching on the Antichrist and the emphasis on the Antichrist in which there was going to be one supernatural being that would come and would... Uh, spread all kinds of falsehood around the world. It would be a time that would be right as the rapture was going to be happening. And we were, had great fear of this coming Antichrist. But that's not how John describes the Antichrist. In fact, John describes a whole bunch of Antichrists. And when does John say they're going to be here? They're already here. They've been here. And so when he talks about the Antichrist, he's not necessarily using it as a proper name. He's using it to describe people, not spirits. He's talking about people. Now, as we read through that, who are these people that are the Antichrist? Whoever denies the Father and the Son. Who else? What else do we know about these people? What? They're liars? Deceivers? What else? Where do they come from? They come from the enemy. They come from us. Who's us? I don't know who said that. Who's us? Out of the church. Now when we go back and we read what he's saying here, this is one of the things that we need to be aware of. Because this happened then, this happens now. He starts off, verse 18, we have heard that, that the Antichrist is coming, so now many have come. Verse 19 says, they went out from us, and they were not of us. I mean, these are literally people calling themselves Christians, saying they are a part of the church, but yet they do not have anything in common with those that are actually in the church. This is one of the good delineations between the church being people versus the church being a place. Like here today, you know, when somebody says, hey, where do you go to church? (laughs) And you say, I go to the coolest church there is, right? No, that's not what you say. I go to this place and it rains when they go to soccer games. You know, that's the church I go to, right? Uh, But that's how we talk about church today. 
It's a place. It's where we hang a sign. That's why I say we are a people. We are not a place. And the church is not just us. It is to say, this is my church is problematic on many ways. No one means anything by it. You mean, this is my community of people that I hang out with, and that's a lot easier to say, this is my church, right? But whenever we say something like, this is my church, it's not our church, it's God's church. It also indicates that my church is different from your church, and it's not. For every faith community in Chattanooga that professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and authentically and correctly teaches God's word, that we are all in the same church. We have different names, we meet in different places, we have different budgets most of the time, right? But we are all the same church, and it all belongs to God, not us. This has been problematic. If you, you know, one of the problems I had early on as a pastor was anytime someone would give a, like a, a big donation, they would want a plaque somewhere. I'm, like, I'm not putting a plaque up, you know, I'm not putting a, and listen, you, you laugh. Listen, those are fighting words in a lot of churches. And, you know, I, I lost friends over something, that kind of stuff. It's like, why are we putting a plaque up? I mean, this is kingdom stuff. I mean, every plaque should be, because this is for God, <laughs> you know, right? Every one of them should be, this is for God, not for us. The church is something so much bigger than just a place. It's so much bigger than just a people who call themselves a faith community because we have those all over. We are all part of the same church. But people who claim to be a part of that people, who are the bride of Christ, are followers of Jesus, they are going to go out and they are going to seek to deceive people. These are the antichrists. And in this particular instance in which John is talking to these churches, he is saying there is a specific false teaching in which they are giving, and that is Jesus is not the Son of God. Now, The reason that's a problem is because what happens if Jesus is not the Son of God? What's the problem with that teaching? Other than he is, but, I mean, what does that lead to? Well, um, because Jesus took our punishment for sin, then if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you don't believe that he is who he says he is, then you cannot believe that he could take our punishment for us and you cannot believe that you're atoned for so that means that you believe that somehow you did something to get saved and that is no yeah or is there even a possibility of salvation yeah. i mean if jesus is not the son of god then what what are you responsible for purpose. what what's the purpose? yeah i mean what's the purpose in our understanding but I mean, it's so basically we're still under the old law S- sacrifice you got to make sure you're doing everything just right. If you do something wrong, you got to do enough sacrifices. And they, they already know that's an imperfect system, that another Messiah is supposed to come in the Jewish faith. And we're probably talking, John's probably talking to some people who are coming out of the Jewish church who are saying, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher, but Jesus was not the Messiah. There are a lot of people who still teach that, and that is problematic. Because if that is true, then Jesus lied about himself. And then, is he a good teacher if he's going around lying about himself? So this is a, a truly problematic teaching because it, it, you, you can't turn it and say things like, oh, but he did good things. Oh, he was a wise man. And make it sound like you have high esteem for him, but ultimately what you're saying is he is a fraud. There is no salvation in Christ. You are on your own. 
And so that was a specific teaching, but there are any number of, of ways that the Antichrist can try to influence. And as you have already said, attempt to deceive. So here are just some quick things for you to think about. Number one, you've already said these, but there is more than one Antichrist. Found a great description of, of the word Antichrist. This comes from the Greek English lexicon of the New Testament. It says the term Antichrist appears to have become increasingly equivalent to a proper name as a personification of all that was opposed to and contrary to the role and ministry of Christ. Everything opposed to Christ. Everything is trying to say he doesn't matter. What he claims isn't true. There is no freedom from sin through Christ. He died and he died. And that's it. Nothing else happened after. And if that is true, then we are are wasting our time here today. If that is true, we are wasting our time today. Antichrists, you need to know, claim to be Christians. This is a big problem for us. It's a big problem in a culture that says don't judge. Because now as followers of Jesus, if we say, I don't think they're a Christian. Oh, you shouldn't be judging. You shouldn't be judging. And yet Jesus and all the apostles said within the church, not outside the church, within the church, you are supposed to judge others. Not in the sense that we pass judgment on sin like God will in the end. In the sense of, is this false teaching that is going to lead people away from the truth? Because when you do that, remember, the reason sin is such a big deal is because when we willingly, openly enter into it, when we continue it, when we say, oh, I'll ask for forgiveness for this later, or we say, well, this isn't that big a deal. I mean, I see other people doing a lot worse than me. Once we begin doing that, we are entrapped and enslaved again, and it begins to decay the very core of who we are in Christ. So when an antichrist come and in any way seems to insinuate, yeah, there's not real freedom in Jesus, or, you know, that sin's not really that big of a deal. They, what the, it is a death sentence for people. And the reason we judge is because what is important to us is that people overcome death. They, we don't lead them to it. And the job of the Antichrist is to lead them to a place of death. And the, re, the, the place of a follower of Jesus is to lead them to a place of life. And what has already also been said, Antichrists, in this particular instance, deny the Father and the Son. They don't matter. They don't matter. All right? In 1 John chapter 4, we're gonna, we'll cover this in a few weeks. I don't know when, maybe 2021. I don't know when we're going to get here. But um, when we do get to chapter 4, um, this is what he also says about Antichrist. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And... We also have said, because you all are on point today, antichrists want to deceive you. That is their goal, is their purpose, in order to deceive us. He's going to also repeat this in Second John chapter, or, well, verse one. There's only one chapter in Second John, but verse seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the, com- the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist so he's this is a real problem for these churches in turkey in which john is working with 
This is a real problem for us today. And you can be in the church. You can come every week. You can be generous. You can serve. Uh, you can come to small group. You can come to, to worship. You can do all those things. But if you deny who God and Jesus are in any way, you easily slip into the role of the Antichrist. This is one of the reasons we have to teach. We have to learn. We have to consume scripture. We have to challenge each other because we are in a world of deception in which we, none of us are immune. Gene? Say that again. They are deceiving. They are deceived. That's very true. Yes, they are those who have been deceived and they are deceiving others. Right. Yeah, good, good point. All right. Anything else? Okay. They want to deceive you. What are some ways that it would make sense? And let's be, let's be cautious with our language here. Let's recognize all of us are still working on being better at picking out the deception in our own hearts. But what are some ways that we can imagine the Antichrist would be active and working today? So um, while I was at camp and I had evangelism and I went out and I talked to people um, about Jesus, um, I would always just try to make sure that I knew where they stood before I went in with the you know, message. And everything, and a lot of people will try to say, like, um, for example, I spoke to a man who practiced Islam, and he said, oh, well, we all believe in the same God, and um, I didn't, I mean, he was, he was busy, so I didn't really get to actually have a long conversation, but I let him know, like, no, we actually, um, in uh, my faith, we believe in the Trinity, and we believe in the Father, the Son, and, but, like, it's just that kind of language, like, it's what, it's crowd-pleasing. It's what everybody would like to believe, mm-hmm. that if you're a good person and you believe in God, you'll go to heaven. But, like, that's what you were talking about. Like, that can, that's deception. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it sounds It sounds good. good. It sounds good. But it's, it's not true. true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yeah, so. Yes. It's, it's deceptive because it sounds good, and we'd love to believe that a lot of people are going to heaven, but... Yeah, that's a very good point. So I don't know if any of you have one of these on your car, and if you do, I'm not trying to pick you out because I don't know. I haven't seen one in our parking lot, but like the, the stickers coexist stickers. So, I'll, you know, there's a humanitarian level in which we can absolutely coexist. You know, like we're all broken people, all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We can coexist. I don't need to come and tell you, you should not exist. <laughs> you know, we can coexist on that level. Our faiths cannot because none of us believe that our faith is one of many valid faiths. We believe our faith is right. <laughs> Therefore, your faith, if it's not the same as mine, is by default wrong. Ours specifically teaches there is one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus alone. There is no other way by which men may be saved but through Jesus Christ. So, 
we can coexist on the level of we have common human experiences. I can love you. I can walk with you. I can be friends with you. But when it comes to the level of what we believe and what we teach, we cannot coexist as if we're all equal, viable alternatives. Now, I don't think if you have that on your sticker, you may be saying it from the place of humanity. I can be loving and recognize you're just a fellow broken sojourner on this world. I found Jesus. You have not yet. You can totally do that. But it is true that there is a place in culture today that wants you to be so welcoming of every alternative that you must deny the things Jesus said. No, I want you to be separate. We are never going to reach a level of spiritual maturity in which everyone is okay with what Jesus teaches. In fact, Jesus teaches, you will be persecuted. (laughs) I mean, he told the disciples, you're going to be killed for this. (laughs) You know, what's interesting is, you know, there's only one that died naturally. You remember who that was? John, who we're talking about. And Jesus says, if it's up to me, if I want John to live forever, what's that to you? He's the only one that ended up dying of natural causes, not being martyred. So, when we begin to look at what does it truly mean to follow Jesus, if we're going to follow his teachings, there are going to be a lot of people that don't like us. Now, let, us, let them not like us for the right reasons. Don't let it be because we're jerks, right? You know, let it be because we are standing for truth. Let them not like us because they love their slavery, not because that we are bad representatives for Christ. So that's an important, that, those are important words. Thank you for sharing that, Renee. What, any other thoughts? What are some, what, how would you imagine these antichrists would be active? Thank you, David. Listen, if you need to move around, if you need to dance around and do this, you're in my peripheral, you know, you're in my peripheral. Go ahead. Right. Um, but Jesus said himself, he came, he came to separate even close relationships if necessary, that he's worth that. And so that's, that's kind of the thing, like the, the non-believing world, whether it's, you know, non-Christians or just non-adherence to religion, quote-unquote, kind of look at us and we, as long as we box our religious activity into a Sunday morning or a Wednesday or whatever, and we're not hurting anybody else, and it's not a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. In which case, we elevate humanity to a place of mm-hmm. being higher than yeah. our relationship with God ourselves. And so that's kind of the thing um, in that respect is that, you know, we as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, you know, have to be willing to chase after Jesus even if it means we're persecuted because he says that that's going to happen. Right. Um, yeah. We have to, even if it's hard relationships. And you see, like, again, the, the, the illustration that, or not illustration, but the experience that Renee shared, that's the story of a lot of converts to Christianity, is that they, they deal with hard separation, children being thrown out by parents and whatnot. Right. That's um, true. That's true. But at the same time, I think we still, as Christians, 
follow the example of Jesus, we need to not be jerks, and we need to, you know, we, we still need to love in a way where we're, we're trying to show love, but still say, hey, look, I'm still, I'm still sticking on the truth here. Yeah, yeah. True. Very good. Let me also just give another slant to this. And so I, I said, I started today, we've said it now every week, I think, the two most powerful forces in the world outside of God are what? Love and shame. The Antichrist will always use shame. It will masquerade as love. I'm concerned for you. It's always shame. And so one of the ways that the Antichrist is also going to do is they're, one of the ways they're going to deceive is they're going to tell you you're not forgiven. I mean, your sin is too bad. When Jesus talked about mercy and grace, he really didn't intend for people at your level. Now, I don't think there are many people out there that this is their tact, but they are out there. But this is very much one of Satan's biggest tools. And you will, when you begin to let shame in your head and in your heart, it will speak louder than any other voice in there. Shame is that voice that constantly says, you're not good enough. It's that constant voice that says, God doesn't love you. It's that constant voice that says, God is mad at you. That says, you will never be anything. Shame is that constant voice that says, you haven't actually asked for forgiveness. Or you didn't really mean it when you asked. Shame is a tool of the Antichrist. And if you pay attention, this is why I, this is why I just encourage you to be so careful during election season because we do a lot of damage during election season the primary tool whether you're a a republican or a democrat in order to sway people to your opinion is not love it is shame shame on you for feeling that way shame on you for thinking that way shame on you for acting that way shame on you for not doing this shame on you for not doing that that is the public discourse in culture because our world speaks the the language of shame so fluently this is not the way of jesus it does not mean that we turn our backs on what we perceive as evil practices going on in the world it doesn't mean we ignore them but the way that we talk about them it's so crucially important that we are not pulled in to the same language as the Antichrist of shame. Jesus is the good news that we are released from that shame. If we have to use shame in order to, and to push people towards him, have we actually pushed them towards Jesus? Or some false idol that looks like him? Yes. Yes, it is. It is. Renee? opinion on an issue like where's the line between like shame and like doing it in love or like conviction or, or accountability well, no no 
No, okay. I'm off. I'm not following it. Oh yeah, no, I don't. I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, her answer is that's a hard one. That's a good no. And don't let my don't let my joking about this mean that it's not a good question. It's a good question. Where where do you draw the line? Like we just not talk about it at all. I know you mean it. I know you're serious. I'm, I'm very much a truth speaker. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you the truth, and I will tell you what, well, at least what I think is the truth. <laughs> and I don't always do a great job of doing it gently, even though my heart mm-hmm. does tend to mean it in a genuine way. Mm-hmm. And so it's taken a lot of time and effort and thought for me mm-hmm. to, to learn to speak it in a loving way, um, but still speak truth. So I don't think it's that we don't speak truth. I think that that we always speak truth. Mm-hmm. It's just we have to be careful in how we present it. Um, truth, truth should be freeing, not enslaving. Shame is enslaving, yeah. not freeing. But very good. Yeah, we got to wrap up here though. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't. I don't have a sweet voice, and I admit that. And you know, I think a lot of people in here can probably relate to that, either uh, as the same kind of person or but one thing that like before I came to Christ one thing that I realized is that shame rushes at you like a football player mm-hmm. and wants to knock you down and mm-hmm. hit on you mm-hmm. and grace approaches you with care with care mm-hmm. measures its word mm-hmm. and is relentless in a different way Yeah, you know, it's not a bully it's, it's just, right. but it's consistent it's not let me knock you down and now you're going to hear yeah Shame says at your core you're worthless. Yes. You should know it. Grace says at your core. Yeah. Well, let me say, let me be careful. I'll say it. Grace says at your core, because of Christ, you have great value. Let go of these entrapping things. There's more to you than that. Shame says. You, there's nothing of value there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will just, let's, so I want to close this out, and I'm, I do want to finish out that first, first 10 verses of three. Um, I'm not going, we're not going to discuss it, because basically you already have, but I want to read it to say we went through it, and then I'll be glad to stay, stick around and talk after. So I would say this, because I think you were asking, like, about political things. Here's, here's what I do. And I'm not saying that this is what you all have to do, or that I've, you know, God put this on a tablet when I visit a mountain somewhere, but uh, I'm just saying this is my, what I do, and I think, and I draw this very much from when uh, Jesus was asked, "Should I give, you know, should I give money to the church, or should I give my money to and pay my taxes?" And Jesus said, "Well, give to God what's God's, and give to Caesar what's Caesar's." Um, we don't live, I, you know, I, we don't. Our kingdom is not the United States of America. It's not North America. It's not the West. Our kingdom is the kingdom of God. Now, we exist and live in the United States of America, and there are wonderful things about the United States of America, but there are some pretty bad things about the United States of America, too. And so we recognize that our, as followers of Jesus, we elevate into a third way. 
whether, you know, and there's more than two parties, but for the majority of the nation, we're two parties. We're Democrats or we're Republicans or we're independents who just won't admit that they're Republicans or Democrats most of the time, not always, most of the time. And, and so I would just encourage you as we move into this election season, uh, try to influence for the kingdom that we're going to be in for the rest of eternity. And when that intersects with political things that are happening now, and, it, and political things are spoken of directly of in Scripture, speak truth in the ways that Jesus would come and deliver from this or would address this in this way. But also understand that most of the political issues that we face today, in some level, they faced back then, and you will find Jesus referenced them very rarely. And he constantly made this, the statement, you just don't understand what the kingdom is. You know, one in particular, you know, two, two in particular that we've talked about before are uh, James and John. Hey, who gets to sit next to you in heaven? You don't get it. That's not what the kingdom's about. Neither one of you are going to sit next to me. You know, that is not what the kingdom is about. Another conversation. Uh, so here's this woman. She's been married five times. And, uh, you know, what happens when they die and they go to heaven? Who's she going to be married to? You don't get it. The kingdom is so much bigger than that question. We're not even given in marriage in the kingdom. You know, it's, it's, so he just constantly says, raise your understanding of what the kingdom is. Now that, that you can, you know, you could easily criticize me and say, well, that's just kind of a, uh, uh, a naive way of dealing with it. And I'll take that criticism, but I, I would just say that if I am going to make a stand on stuff, let, let's make a stand on the stuff that matters eternally. And, but, in the area of politics, if you see an area of oppression, we should speak out against oppression. I mean, we should do that. But we should speak out about it, not because it matches our party's talking points. We should speak out about it and how it relates to the kingdom. So I'm just saying elevate the kingdom because, I listen, I don't know about you, but I've never made a political statement and had people that disagree with me flock to me and say, I was so wrong. You have changed my mind. Thank you so much. My, I have been set free. Your argument was so well put. I am just a new person. No, what happens? I'll never talk to them again. And so that's fine. That may be fine on politics, but they'll also never talk to you about Jesus again either. So I'm just saying be careful. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you not to be involved in the issues. There are, there, are, there are issues that are involved in politics I'm involved in on a regular basis. But one of the things we need to be careful about is we just need to be careful about the way we talk. I think that's a great summation that Stacy's giving. Are, are we sharing truth in a way that's helpful or are we sh- uh, sharing truth in a way um, that's shameful? Just be very careful because the national discourse is shame. Just be very careful is what I'm saying. Don't lose an opportunity to share something deeper and more eternal because we are so, they've got our, you know, they made us mad over something political in this kingdom that's going to pass away at some point. All right. I'm going to read this and then we're going to, we're going to quit for today. First John 3, 1 and 10. You can come back and read this later if you want. He basically just goes on and makes one more plea and everything in which we have just said. 
See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. That is that restoring place. We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, which he's going to come back and address in the coming uh, and later in this letter and his other letters, which we'll follow that up later. Let it be said that the reason we fight against sin is because sin enslaves and it entraps. But whenever we receive the righteousness from Christ and then we follow in his teachings and we follow in his commandments, whenever we do that, we are set free. We are made whole. We are abiding in Christ. We are made well. This is, the, this is the fight that we all will have until Jesus returns. Let us fight it well and not pretend it doesn't exist. Father, God, I thank you for the grace in which you've given us. I thank you for the insight from, um, from so many in, in our congregation today. Father, I pray that you would continue to teach us so that we can be followers of you that are leading others to know you and the freedom that they can have through you. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for our sin. I thank you that even though we follow you and we do sin, you still give us mercies every day and you allow us to repent, to ask forgiveness, and to continue to grow and change and mature. And I pray that that would happen for each one of us in this room. I pray for that person that is here today that is under the condemnation of shame. They are here, they are constantly hearing shameful things, whether it be from someone in their family, someone at work, or even within their own head, you have come to set them free from shame. And so, Father, I pray that today they would hear you confidently and loudly say to them, you are my child. You are forgiven. I love you. You are worthy. And I want you to be with me forever. Let us break the yoke of shame that falls over our nation, that falls over our families, that falls over our lives by pursuing becoming more and more like Christ every day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.